Alrighty. Last week, um, we talked about the wonder of the physical relationship between a man and a woman and what scripture says about that. Um, and it is something that needs to be discussed in the church. Why? Because it's in scripture. And so we talk about these things. Uh, very important. Um, do you want to snag me? Do you want to snag me? No, I want a whole one. Right. <laughs> just, just, in case, just in case there's one, make sure there's one left for me. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the wonder of the physical relationship with that cinnamon roll sitting there and staring me in the eyes. Um, I should probably actually look at my notes here. As we. You really don't want me to wing this. Okay. Uh, the, the fact that there are biblical purposes behind the physical relationship, it isn't just a thing. It's not just frosting on a cinnamon roll. That's going to be the theme today. Um, we see, too, that there are, there are biblical challenges in the physical relationship because of the fall of man, which we are about to start getting into. Um, we see, too, that the physical relationship is intended to be a blessing for a husband and wife, not merely in physical satisfaction, but increase, in increasing the oneness and the unity of the husband and wife. We looked at how the husband is his wife's and the wife is her husband's. And God's word says that our intention in the physical relationship should not be for me, but should be for the other. My intention in the physical relationship should be for the other that way. And this ultimately is glorifying to God. I mean, it's, it is glorifying to God. Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul talks about the mystery. He's talking about the physical relationship between a husband and wife. A husband, you know, cares for his bride that he might present her to himself holy and pure and he's talking about the the majesty of this union but then he says but i'm talking about the relationship between christ and the church the mystery is that the relationship between a husband and a wife reflects something greater it's almost like that physical relationship is an allegory between what is supposed to be the extraordinary intimacy between Christ and the church, which is why I think when we get to heaven, we're going to giggle. When we think back to how great we thought the physical relationship was, and it's going to absolutely pale in comparison to the intimacy that we have with the living God right there, right then, and the intimacy that we have with one another. There through God and through the Holy Spirit and being there together in unity. I, I, I use the example of Candyland. You know, adults playing Candyland, it's like, yeah, no thanks. As a kid, you go, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. But as an adult, you look back on that and you go, not so much. This is The other things that we do now are so much greater and so much more enjoyable and so much different will be that relationship in heaven. We looked at the idea of complementarianism and egalitarianism. Are we complementary or are we equal and which is most important? What does scripture say? Scripture says yes. Yes, we are equal before God. God created them male and female. All carry the imago dei, the image of God within each. 
At the same time, God did create the male and female distinct. And we see distinctive roles in there that he created a helper for man in the garden. We're going to see that the curses upon them are different. We see that the blessings, the exhortations in the New Testament are different for man and woman. The husband is supposed to lead the family. He is supposed to be the head of the family. That does not make the wife a doormat. I sent out an uh, audio by John Piper uh, this week. Uh, I don't know if you had a, had a chance to listen to it. That I thought was really great as far as that whole idea of the roles of husband and wife. Our only hope really truly to get it right in our relationship as husband and wife is to be absolutely saturated in what God's word says about it. Otherwise we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to end up off-roading, hitting trees and such. All right. Last, that was last week. Just recap. And where do we stand at this point in Genesis? We've just completed Genesis chapter 2. So what's going on? Do you have a question? I had a question from last week. Um, I thought we unpacked the concept of complementarianism and egalitarianism yes. really well. Um, my uh, question for you and the married and unmarried in the room is what y'all think are the practical distinctives between complementarianism and, and egalitarianism. The reason I ask this is that I've seen a, both a misunderstanding, I think, and a straw man against complementarianism, and, and I feel like it's outlined the practical things of the two would maybe help that. The misunderstanding is, I think a lot of times Christian couples, we know that they just almost see complementarianism as a, as a division of tasks. The, the, the woman's place is the kitchen. The man's place, more so, is never the kitchen. And, and, and so there's these no-fly zones in the relationship, and it becomes very dysfunctional. And, and that's not at all how I've experienced marriage. And the other thing is a straw man against complementarianism, which they, it is distinct that conceptually the main difference sort of is that man is the head, or the husband is the head. So they think of it almost always as... The, the wife needs to submit. The wife needs to submit for what food we're going to get for for, for lunch, uh, for where we vacation, for what movie we watch. It's it's I do this. It's always leading and following and everything. Yeah, and no. that's just not the way okay, I practically that, see it. I'm not going to unpack all of that, Joseph, simply because it would take an entire another lesson. I will mention that the podcast that I linked to you covers that very thing. Because the husband in that podcast feels weaker spiritually than the wife. His wife is so much more advanced. How do I lead a woman this way? And John Piper really takes the time to highlight the complementarianism and to point out the fact that it isn't just, God didn't make, hey, guys do this, women do this. He created men and women uniquely different to come together as complements for his glory. This is, this is a glorifying thing here. Complementarianism is in great disfavor in the world around us. It is in great disfavor because it, it makes, you know, women your doormats and husbands your, you know, like this. And you go, you don't understand what complementarianism is all about. Which is why having a biblical understanding of what it is you know, when you read it, 
uh, it doesn't mean that the, the husband dismisses his bride and her thoughts and her opinions and her wisdom. Because again, she may be wiser in the things of the Lord than her husband is. And so a wise leader is going to consult his people uh, in that type of situation. But again, that would, I, 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 forgive me, just, Joseph. I'm just I, curious for people in the room, if you think about what are some practical ways you guys Joseph, I don't that. want to do that right okay. now. Thank That's you. That's fine. I'll defer them. Okay. Great. That would, again, that, that, is a, that is a great point, great discussion topic. Okay. If, if I, if. I wanted to spend my fifth week on Genesis 2, 24 and 25. We would, we would press on with that. Um, and today we're going to, anyway, let me, let me go back to where I was. Where are we in Genesis? Before the fall. Okay, before the fall. So what's going on in the garden? Everything is hunky-dory. Okay, good. There's, there's no... Yeah, you've got you've got husband and wife there, and everything is glorious, truly. So, kid, I want to go back a little bit. Complementary is equal. No, that's egalitarian. Equal. Think equal equality, egalitarianism. Husband and wife both have the imago dei before God. There is neither male nor female. That would be the Galatians 3 passage. <clears throat> okay. So complementary meaning. Like a pieces up, of uh, a puzzle. Yeah. It helps. It helps me. Mm-hmm. Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, essentially God's word. Okay. There. God has rested. All is good. And then boom, we've got verse chapter 3, verse 1. Somebody read chapter 3, verse 1, please. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Where did he come from? <laughs> he was just there. Okay. What's, what's the background we get? None. None. So, if you are reading this, trucking along, everything's good, and all of a sudden, where did this guy come from? Uh, It would be really easy to go off-roading and assume things about God that are not true. Okay, so it's important that we affirm some things here that are true so that we don't get goofy. Uh, what are some important things that we must say, this is true and therefore I'm not, I'm not getting strange in my theology? <clears throat> Let me ask a question. Did God create evil? No. no. He made all things. I don't think there is anything that was made that he didn't make. Okay. Did God create evil? He did create the tree of the yes, knowledge yes. of good and evil. He did? Did God create evil? If he did, then why did he say everything was good? 
question makes me uncomfortable. Does it make you uncomfortable? Okay, we're not there yet. We're, we're just talking about the devil. We're just talking about Satan and not about people. Because evil in and of itself is not evil until what? it's acted upon. Did we got to go back to what it says at the end of chapter, or at the start of, end of chapter 2. That God said everything in verse 31 of chapter 1, saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It is very good. And so we must affirm that. That in all of the creation, nothing God created was amiss. Nothing was evil. Nothing even inclined toward evil. So at this point, if we, before we step into chapter 3, when we're back in chapter 2, everything is very good. Hunky-dory is what Arnold used. There's nothing, nothing goofy in the garden. But then we go, where did this guy come from? If everything God created is very good. And so I can't assume then that God created this evil creature. Because that would be to say that God did create evil. God created something evil. Intentionally with a darkened and blackened heart that was that would not be good. That would not be a good thing. In James, we are going to be all over the place in Scripture here this morning. In James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God entices no one to do evil. That is never God's intention. How can I say that with authority? Because that's what it says. There are some things that we have to affirm about God um, or we are going to mess with his character here. Uh, verse 17 of James chapter 1 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is not even a shadow of evil upon him. When the, the cherubim around the throne sing out, what do they sing out? Holy, holy, holy. Holy? Not, yeah, sort of holy. No. Mostly holy, no. Holy, oh, for point of emphasis, holy, holy, holy. If he is holy, can he create evil? No. Revelation 
Revelation chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 6, both give us pictures in the throne room and both declare that God is holy. Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, which we're studying just across the hallway, Nebuchadnezzar, after he had his eyes opened, he declared, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that all his works, God's, are right and his ways are just. All his ways are right. If I create something whose sole purpose is to be evil, are my ways right? You know, that can't be. David declared in Psalm 145, verse 17, the Lord is right in all his ways. So holy is God that he calls his creatures to holiness in 1 Peter chapter 1 and back in Leviticus chapter 11. Be holy for I am holy. Could God, okay, and this, this goes to what Katrina was pointing to. If God did not create evil, then where does evil come from? And what were you alluding to? Yeah, but that's not my inclination. My inclination is not toward evil. I was going by Arnold. Arnold did, did this. Okay. Can God create creatures who are good from, from stem to stern, front to back, left to right, that are good but have the potential, have volition to choose to reject what he has said? Does that create an evil being? No. No, it's a good, this is a good thing. But this, this thing, this person, has the potential to not follow me. I create, I create this person good and beautiful and wonderful and love them. And I, I give this person one thing. I say, don't mess with that fire hydrant over there. I go, Everything else in this, in this playground is yours. And enjoy it. Don't mess with fire hydrant. And she goes, okay. She has no inclination to go after the fire hydrant. No, no reason to doubt or be suspicious or skeptical of me. I am her creator. Is there the potential for her to go, I wonder what that's like. But, but he said don't, so I'm not going to. But, you know, well, maybe. Is there that potential there? Is that, did I create a flaw in her? No. How can we say that? I, have, I, I had a, almost this very discussion with a guy 20, 30 years ago. So, to clarify, you're not using sin and evil interchangeably. Explain your question. 
Is there a question or is there well, a statement? So you said that we don't, we're not inclined to evil. However, we are inclined to sin. I mean, we're because not. of the well. Okay, that's true. I, I, that's, Adam I and Eve were that. not. I didn't word that well. So, in our current state, because of the fall, absolutely, we are in, we are, we are now evil in a natural state, inclined yep. to sin. Evil is rampant on the earth now. And so, when you say that our natural bent isn't for evil, I think, well, I mean, am we're, I the only one in the room whose natural bent is to sin? We're going to. All the time? This is this is so important because be. understanding this is going to help us understand our future state as well. Where there will be no inclination for evil. God even, we looked at a couple of passages yesterday in Isaiah, nope, Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 36. Where God says so much he's going to give us a new heart that we're not even going to incline toward evil. Oh, what a day that will be. You know, where the, I'm not, there won't be a temptation to do that. I just go, I don't want to do that. You know. Some people don't like Brussels sprouts. You go, I'm not even inclined to even try this. I find them repugnant. I love them. But, you know, you, so you don't have that inclination. Not even anymore. Not nothing. Not even a, well, about the fire hydrant. It's not there. So it is possible for God to create a potential without creating evil. And oh, by the way, what is love? God is love. Oh, that's Jesus. What is love? Okay. There's actions. There's commitment, which implies you have made a choice. I choose to love this person. Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified, if you love me, keep my commandments. John, in, that, in his letter that he wrote some 40 years after the, that, 40, 50 years after that, wrote down that if we do love him, we will keep his commandments. That love is going to impel us into, I, I want to do that. I, I, I choose to do that out of the joy of my heart. So... A possibility of evil. What do we know about this guy in the first sentence? No, we're not. I said from the first sentence, Arnold. He's crafty. He's crafty. Okay, and this isn't a Pinterest thing. He's crafty. The word is prudent. The word most of the times translated within the Old Testament is prudent. Is that a bad thing? What's implied by a prudent person? Describe a prudent person. Very discerning in his own way. They're discerning. They are thoughtful before making a decision. So in the good sense, we have that. In the negative sense, here is the serpent who is studious of a situation. How do we know this is the devil? We don't yet. 
We don't. How do we know in Scripture then that this is the devil? It takes all the way to the book of Revelation before we get a clear tying of the fact that this is Satan. Was this ever in doubt to the Jews? No. Now, because of what happens here, it is very plain that this is the evil one. Ultimately, what is going to transpire. So, when we look at this, when we look at Genesis, what do we know of Satan? We know very little. Other than what he does here, and, and we'll be looking at that uh, next week. Um, even if we go to 2 Corinthians verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 3, it talks about Eve and the serpent there. Um, it, in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, it, it speaks of her deception, but it doesn't tie it specifically to Satan. So what we're going to do here is look ultimately at the passages that point to this. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 12. Here, where we get, as we vault all the way. Revelation chapter 12. Somebody read verses 7 through 10, please. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. <clears throat> he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accused them day and night before God. Good. So from this passage... What do we understand about Satan? Constantly against us. Okay, that's currently. What about what happened in the past? He was thrown down. From? Heaven. With? His angels. Okay. And then what's it say? Nothing. It says he was cast down. So you go, Okay. That's intriguing. Revelation chapter 12, or verses 9, or yep, particularly 9 and 10, we see that there was an event that took place in heaven that led to an eviction, not merely of Satan, but of others as well. I would argue this is where the demonic realm comes from also. 
at this point. So from here, it's, it's, really, it's really a game of detective work. And this is where, you know, as you read through all of Scripture, these, oh, there's another, oh, there's another one that speaks of this guy. So let's take a look at Jesus' words about Satan here and this one. Uh, perhaps one of the most powerful verses on the nature of this creature. Uh, John chapter 8. Please. Um, on this, on chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Yes. Where do we see the time that this occurred? You don't. There are other than, I mean, in, in this allegory that he's speaking of, uh, okay, a, a war in heaven. So Michael and the angels. So we have the angelic realm as well already being present. So it can't be before Genesis 1-1 where there is nothing, I would argue. He was defeated and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. When was that? It doesn't say. But we go on. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. He was thrown down to earth with his angels. Uh, let's see. Well, that's actually in a different spot. This time is short. So it doesn't, it doesn't give us... There's another passage that talks about the dragon going after the woman and the child where you have a picture then of Mary, or of Israel really, giving birth to the Messiah and the dragon in pursuit of him later on, but that's later on in the passage. So really there is no time stamp here at this point. Other, other than we know that he was evicted from heaven and obviously is not a good creature here at this point. And we can deduct that it was before his encounter with uh, Adam and Eve because of what he did. Very likely. I mean, we have to if it was, if it was all good. The fall of Satan had to take place somewhere between... Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Where everything is very good, how much time was there? We don't know. Weeks, months, years, don't know. Go ahead. You think the fall of Satan happened between Genesis 2, 24 and Genesis 3, 1? Yes. What's the evidence of that? Uh, because everything was very good after God's creation. Couldn't that be... The created world and not the spiritual world, the third third heaven and all the angels and the because there's no mention of creating angels in Genesis. You're right. Chapter one. You're right, Joseph. Um, my again, this is a belief, not a conviction. I won't die on it. Yeah. Um, but in Exodus chapter twenty, in when God's talking about the Sabbath, He makes very plain that all of His creation in the heavens and the earth were made in those six days that outside of it, there was nothing else made. Some would argue, well, it's not necessarily... Which heaven is you referring to? Yeah. Uh, but he says heavens there as opposed to heaven. And Revelation, I like how it says that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. And so it's like almost implying that like something's, there's a purpose in the cross like before uh, the, the creation world even happened. Absolutely. I mean, this was... God, God's not reacting... God's not a hockey goalie going, I wonder where they're going to shoot the puck. God is the actor in this. So 
again, we're, we're, we're piecing together what Scripture says. We know that there was a great fall. We know that all of creation was very good. Here is the serpent. So at some point between Genesis 1.31, and I would argue Genesis 2 took place, again, Genesis 2 is an exposition of chapter 1, you know, we're gonna, where we're going to zoom in and look at a particular event. So I would say Genesis 2 took place before Genesis 1.31. There, and so together in that package, everything is very good, and then boom, we have the serpent. So it, it appears there was an angelic fall. I look at that clock and go, I'm two minutes late, and I'm not. I'm good. If I, if, I, if I lose track of time, somebody holler at me, please. Um, all right. Uh, anyway, we were in John. So we're going we're gonna to continue just to get facts about this guy and try and piece together what we're looking at when we look at this guy in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. John chapter 8, verse 44. Tracy, would you read that, please? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning. Did God create him a murderer? No. No, he was a murderer from the beginning of his diabolical machinations. Okay. From that time. But Jesus Christ makes plain that in Satan there is no good. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a destroyer. There. Chapter 10 of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, the disciples have just gone out and cast out demons and done all kinds of wonderful and extraordinary things. Um, 72 of them in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he goes on to say, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. I mean, that's, that's great. That's wonderful that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that you are the redeemed. But Jesus Christ says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. How could he have seen that? He's there. Okay. I mean, what is this a proclamation of on his part? Tremendous. Either Michael the Archangel or Yeah. Deity. Yeah, absolutely. He's a, he's a witness to this event. Okay. I was there when he was, I believe this hints to, again, I'm going to use that word purposefully, I believe 
This points to the event in Revelation 12 that we looked at. I saw Satan fall like lightning. So where is Satan now? Where is his, where does he hang out? He abodes on earth. Because he's seeking, he's roaming to and fro seeking whom he may devour. Okay. Yep. There's, there's, there's so much stuff to address. We're going to look at how this affects us now after we look at the fall. But we're trying to get his, his modus operandi right now. Where is he right now? He, so it talks about him being cast down to earth. Uh, there's a couple of other verses that hint to what is his place, what is his authority. Um, Jesus Christ, God the Son, refers to him this way in, in uh, John chapter 14, verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Doesn't mean he's coming. He's coming for him. He's got his eyes set, bullseye on Jesus Christ's forehead. He's coming. The ruler of this world is coming. He refers to Satan as the of this world. He, uh, that's okay. Uh, John 14, verse 30. John 14, verse 30. Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. In 1 John, we are exhorted not to love the world or the things in the world. Okay, and again, what's in this world? Those awesome cinnamon rolls are in this world. Okay, I'm not supposed to love those. Okay, there. Am I not supposed to love those? Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about loving God's creation. Yes, absolutely. Delight and enjoy in God's creation. The things of this world are the powers that are tilting now everything toward evil. The things that have corrupted these things. Or if those things become a little God to me, even God's created good things become a God to me. Man, those are, not, those are not our God there. So Satan now in this realm seems to have an authority here and now. Job also speaks of this. Who wrote Job? I don't know. Job write Job? I don't know. How did he get pictures of what's going on in the throne room of heaven? I don't know. We can only assume that God revealed this to him. Job chapter 1 verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Who would the sons of God be? Yes, we believe that would be the angelic host. Okay, the angelic host coming before God. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan said, from going to and fro on the earth. Because that's where he sent me. Walking up and down high. Job appears with whom? 
the angels. So, again, it doesn't say this, but you could infer from this verse alone that he was part of the angelic host, that he would come with the other angels. Probably the last in the line now. I'm sorry? You said Job, but you Satan. Meant Satan. I meant Satan. Sorry, forgive me. Satan would be part of the angelic structure. Possibly, potentially. Implication one of them. So, but you go, that's pretty, that's okay. Well, maybe. But there are two prophecies in the Old Testament that are fairly stark and fairly startling. We'll spend the rest of the time largely there. First one is Isaiah chapter 14. I've mentioned this before. This is on the back page of your notes. Isaiah 14, verses 4 through 20. You can remember these two chapters. 14 plus 14 is 28. So Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 are the two passages. Isaiah chapter 14 is talking about the king of Babylon. Now, when we read prophecy, when I read things in prophecy, it's really easy to, oh, this means this, and this means that, and this means that. Don't, don't do that. Be very careful about um, making prophecy say what you want it to say. It's important that we look at how prophecy is fulfilled in Scripture so that we can go back and look at other prophecies and go, I mean, if it's always fulfilled just how it says, then I should pretty much take it how it says. If it's a person, it's a person. If it's something else, it's something else. So we start out here in chapter 14, verse 4, and says, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. You go, okay, it's the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased and the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. We go, this is a king, right? There's nothing weird or where you go, ooh, this is something suspect. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. I would think, based on what we are about to read, that verse 8 deals with idolatry. Idolatry has ceased since this one has been laid low. Sheol, hell beneath the grave is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders on the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you have become as weak as we are. Basically, ha! You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to shale. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. And we still go, this is a king. Then we get to verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are fallen from heaven, 
You go, we've heard that somewhere else in Scripture. O day star, the Hebrew word for that is Lucifer, which is why we refer to him as Lucifer, son of dawn, a star. Stars within Scripture, within the Revelation, are angels, can represent angels in Revelation chapter 1. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Can any king do this? No. So, it is surmised here that this is speaking of Satan. That what happened, he raised himself above God for somehow, some reason, in that possibility. He then went, I want that place. He had no inclination toward evil. He was tempted by no one but himself. And we'll read about that in Ezekiel. Are we doing on time? Okay. I will ascend to the heights above the cloud. Verse 6, 15. But you are brought down to shale to the reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man or is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook the nations, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities and did not let his prisoners go home? Okay, and he goes on from there. You are cast out away from the grave like a loathed branch. This will be future. So in this, in this prophecy, I believe we have a look all the way back and a look all the way forward contained in one section. Ezekiel 28. Beginning in verse 11, we see this one is to the king of Tyre. Okay, again, let's read it as though it were to the king of Tyre. And raise your hand when you think he's getting a little wonky that this is not about a king. You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You know, King, <laughs> That's a, you're really going to have to twist in your mind and go, okay, how's this a king here? Um, guardian, he had a, he had a position of authority. Some would argue 
that he was one of the three most powerful angels. Uh, Gabriel, God's chief messenger. Michael, God's chief warrior. And Lucifer, the one who was in charge of worship. In his beauty, walking among the fire in heaven. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. What inclined his heart? In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. And again, that will be a day yet to be. Verses 18 and 19, ultimately, he has a dreadful end established for him. So at some point before Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, I believe after Genesis 1.31, I could be wrong on that, this angel led a rebellion in heaven and brought a third of the angelic host with him. And they were cast to earth. And this one masquerades, we are told, as an angel of light. He masquerades as an angel of light. I would say he doesn't have to masquerade. He was beautiful, which is a creepy thing. Think of Eve in the garden. What did Eve have to fear? Nothing. Should she have been on the lookout as we are today? No. There's nothing to be on the lookout for. There was nothing for her to be on the lookout for. Everything was good, but evil had come into the creation. God cast Satan from his presence to earth. Yeah, that's very interesting because, I mean, they didn't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The angels didn't because they weren't in the garden. So we say God didn't create evil, yet there was a capacity for it within the created angelic beings. Yep. And within human beings. Yeah. And we're gonna, that's what we're going to look at next time. Um, could God have cast them into the abyss to begin with? Right away. Absolutely. Could have. Why didn't he? Wasn't his plan. Wasn't his plan. Some people will go, well, God's just a, a cosmic setup. You know, he's just, he's a trickster. He's a jester. He's going, oh, I'm going to put him in the garden. I'm, I'm going to cast him to the earth. And now my creation, which was very good, is still very good. 
is still very good, despite the spiritual demon that is now living there. And, you know, the minor chord plays in the orchestra, and you know something evil is about to happen. Don't go in the house. Next week, we're going to look at what happened when they went in the house. Any, any thoughts or, or comments on this? I, I didn't finish up the last couple of things. We'll, we'll go into what about Adam's absence? Where's Adam in, in this whole thing as we get into the fall, the actual fall next week? I think it's important we take time to figure out where, how does Satan come into this whole thing in the first so place. that part that where Satan was thrown from heaven or the, and the angelic beings, that was in Revelation chapter 14? 12. 12. So that's interesting to me that why God wouldn't have made it more plain. Uh, this is when I created the angels. This is when I threw them out of heaven because it was, it was in chapter 12 after all this other stuff had occurred, and then he says we're going back to the beginning. And so that is... Why, why didn't he put it in Genesis chapter 2.5? Yeah. Why didn't he? Because his word is good and perfect and sufficient for us. All right. Now, there's, there's all kinds of questions. We go, I don't know, but God is good and right and just right. and holy and pure and I mean, there were several purposeful. times that you said up there, I don't know. I don't know. And it's interesting, it's good to say I don't know and not, and that doesn't impact our belief no. in God's word. No. Just because we don't know. Which is why I have to stand on the truths that I do know. Right. That God is holy, God is good, God is right, and I don't make him into some cosmic jester and turn him into something he is not. Because otherwise I'm going to start getting really weird in my theology. Keith, you mentioned that. He 